turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, what is this, Thursday? It's Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. Chris Williams is engineering in Clark Hilton's place as he is sunning himself on the sunny beaches of Oahu. Uh, coming up on today's program, we're going to talk with Jolene Philo. She is the author, I should say co-author, along with uh, Dr. Gary Chapman of uh, the book Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families, the five love languages for parents raising children with disabilities. And it's not just the parents' love languages toward one another, but what the child's love language is in, as well and how that can help uh, in raising a, a child with disabilities. We'll get into that later this hour. MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell on Wednesday night retracted a story that directly tied President Trump's finances to Russia and made on-air uh, an on-air apology for running the unverified report rather breathlessly without question the day before. Last night on the show, I discussed information that wasn't ready for reporting, O'Donnell said. I repeated statements a single source told me about the president's finances and loan documents with Deutsche Bank, saying it true, as I discussed the information, was simply not good enough. I did not go through the rigorous verification and standards process here at MSNBC before repeating what I heard from my source. Had it gone through that process, I would not have been permitted to report it. I should not have said it on air or posted it on Twitter I was wrong to do so. Good for him. That's the right way to uh, to handle whatever side of the political continuum you happen to be on, at least good for him. He shouldn't have said it in the first place as a broadcast professional, but at least he did the right thing. Several struggling uh, Democratic presidential candidates have failed to qualify for next the next round of primary debates scheduled in September. Those missing the cut include U.S. Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, billionaire climate change activist Tom Steyer, rather Montana Governor Steve Bullock and self-help guru Marianne Williamson, who said she might do something of uh, follow up, uh, sort of like the rebuttal after the State of the Union address. So you might listen up for that to appear on stage in Houston next month. They had to hit two percent in at least four approved public opinion polls while securing one hundred and thirty thousand unique donors. Hours ahead of the midnight Wednesday deadline to qualify, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York announced she was dropping out of the race. In an interview with Tucker Carlson tonight, she complained that the Democratic National Committee lacks transparency in the debate qualification process. The conservative Virginia-based National Legal and Policy Center filed a complaint against Representative Ilhan Omar with the Federal Election Commission on Wednesday, alleging that the lawmaker used campaign funds to illegally reimburse her purported paramour for personal travel expense. The complaint also charges that she failed to itemize travel reimbursements as required by the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971 and that the travel expenses increased during the same month that Omar's uh, um, alleged relationship with a married Washington, D.C. political consultant Uh, was um, heating up. Omar has denied that she had an affair and her attorneys have dismissed the FEC complaints as baseless political ploy. 
Well, you don't really mess with the FEC as baseless and political. You have to address them. So we'll follow that story. Hurricane Dorian moved uh, out over um, waters early Thursday after doing limited damage in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And forecasters warn it could hit Florida over the weekend. The U.S. National Hurricane Center said Dorian was expected to strengthen into a dangerous Category 3, possibly 4 hurricane, as it stayed well to the east of the southeastern uh, and central Bahamas over the next two days. The forecast called for the storm to pass near or over the northern Bahamas on Saturday and close in on Florida by Sunday afternoon. The Department of Homeland Security has barred Democratic staffers from the House Oversight Committee from visiting Customs and Border Protection facilities at the U.S.-Mexico border as part of a planned trip this week after committee staff allegedly were disruptive and refused to follow instructions during their last trip. Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings has sent his uh, staff to visit border facilities for oversight inspections last week and planned to send staff again to view Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and CBP centers. But sources say that the DHS has revoked access to the facilities for the upcoming visit, citing staff behavior that interfered with the law enforcement operations, including refusing to leave one site after their scheduled window skipping some tours and being rude to officers. The Department of Homeland Security officials said that ICE visitors or visits will still be allowed uh, the rest of the week, but with a two-hour time limit. Former FBI Director James Comey, whose Trump derangement syndrome motivated him to leak memos, has managed to remain legally unscathed, but his luck just might be running out. The Justice Department Inspector General revealed, we conclude that Comey's retention, handling and dissemination of certain memos violated Department of and FBI policies and his FBI employment agreement. Furthermore, Comey is also a possible target of Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz's investigation into alleged Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act abuse according to the Washington Examiner. He signed three of the four FISA applications targeting former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page before being fired by Trump. Horowitz's uh, report is uh, was released, uh, rather, is expected to be released after Labor Day. Put another way, um, Dorian might not be the only storm wreaking havoc over the coming weeks and months. Former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams on Wednesday ruled out running for the Senate next year following news that Senator Johnny Isaacson would retire, according to The Hill. Maybe that's because she has her eyes set on the Veep prize. We'll have to wait and see. And Facebook announced on Wednesday that it will tighten its rules on political advertising ahead of the 2020 elections in an attempt to crack down on election interference after insidious actors ran rampant on the platform in 2016. The rules will enhance a previous set of regulations the social media company rolled out last year requiring political advertisers to name and prove the identities of the groups behind their ads. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we're looking forward to a conversation with Jolene Filo. She's the author, co-author of Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families, the five love languages for parents raising children with disabilities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. FBI and Internal Revenue Service agents raided the home of UAW President Gary Jones in Metro Detroit early Wednesday as part of a nationwide sweep of sites tied to the auto worker union, the Detroit Free Press reports. Agents also raided the uh, California home of um, Dennis Williams, who preceded Jones as UAW chief, the union's northern Michigan uh, conference center, the UAW regional office in Missouri, where Jones was based previously, and the home of Williams aide Amy 
a loshing of um, Wisconsin. The multi-agency raids were a major step as federal officials ramped up their corruption investigation of the Auto Workers Union, which is in the midst of contract negotiations with Detroit automakers. And yet they wonder why Chattanooga's Volkswagen plant doesn't want AUW representation. Well, or UAW's representation. The Environmental Protection Agency in a proposed rule will aim to eliminate federal requirements that oil and gas companies install technology to inspect for and fix methane leaks from wells, pipelines, and storage facilities. Under the proposal, methane, the main component of natural gas, would be only indirectly regulated. A separate but related category of gases known as the volatile organic compounds would remain regulated under the new rule, and those curbs would have the side benefit of averting some methane emissions. And this year is shaping up to be the first year that women make up the majority of the college-educated labor force, a milestone that is already altering benefit packages offered by companies and one that could influence family sizes in the future. Since 2013, the female share of college-educated workers has been around 49%, uh, with 2019 being the year that women cross it uh, into the very slight majority. And on this day in history, way back in 1842, the Treaty of Nanking is signed, ending the Opium Wars and ceding the island of Hong Kong to Britain. On this day in 1949, the USSR tests its first atomic bomb, On this day in history, 1957, the Senate gives final congressional approval to a civil rights act after Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, then a Democrat, ends a filibuster that lasted 24 hours. And on this day in history, 1966, the Beatles play their last major live concert concert rather at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. On this day in 1991, the Supreme Soviet, the parliament of the USSR, suspends all activities of the Communist Party, bringing an end to the institution. And on this day in 2005, Hurricane Katrina slams into the U.S. Gulf Coast, destroying beachfront towns in Mississippi and Louisiana, displacing a million people and killing more than 1,800. Finally, on this day in 2008, Republican presidential nominee John McCain picks Alaska Governor Sarah Palin to be his running mate. Well, a strengthening Hurricane Dorian is churning over the warm, open waters of the Atlantic today as forecasters show the storm becoming more dangerous in its path to Florida's east coast, a track that's prompted President Trump to warn Dorian will be big. The National Hurricane Center said as of 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time that Dorian is a Category 1 storm with sustained winds near 85 miles per hour, and it's moving northwest at 13 miles an hour. It was located about 220 miles at that time north-northwest of San Juan, Puerto Rico. Forecasters believe the storm will strengthen into a dangerous Category 3 hurricane by Friday, staying well east of the southern and central Bahamas before making a turn toward Florida by Sunday afternoon. At that time, the latest forecast is for the storm to be a Category 4 storm as it approaches Florida. Hurricane Dorian looks like it will be hitting Florida late Sunday night. The president uh, tweeted Thursday morning, be prepared and please follow state and federal instructions. It will be a very big hurricane, perhaps one of the biggest. They're saying in perhaps 30 years in Florida, if predictions hold true. Dorian is still a long way away from eventually hitting the Florida coast, which gives residents across the area plenty of time to prepare. Uh, No matter where this ultimately goes, it does look like it's going to land along the Florida coast, but it's running over, excuse me, warm water and it's going to continue to intensify, according to meteorologists.
The Justice Department's Inspector General sharply criticized James Comey on Thursday, saying in a report that the former FBI director violated bureau, uh, bureau policy in the handling of memos that he wrote after conversations with the president. The report details how Comey handled seven memos he wrote between January of 2017 and April of 2017, following interactions he had with the president. The Inspector General's office determined that four of those memos contained information classified as secret or confidential. Comey, who was fired as FBI director in May of the same year, provided four of the memos to his personal attorneys after his ouster. He also gave screenshots of some memos to his close personal friend with instructions to provide the information to the New York Times. Comey testified in June of 2017 to the Senate Intelligence Committee that he directed the friend, Daniel Richmond, to share the information with the Times in order to trigger a special counsel investigation. The ploy was unsuccessful, the day, or rather, was successful. A day after Richmond provided the information to the Times, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller's special counsel to oversee the Russia investigation. By then, the Justice Department had also opened an investigation into whether Trump tried to obstruct the Russia probe. Uh, The inspector general's report is harsh toward Comey, saying that he failed to live up to this responsibility as a former FBI director by not safeguarding sensitive information obtained during the course of his FBI employment. The 83-page report also faulted Comey for leaking one of his memos in order to create public pressure for official action. Doing so set a dangerous example for the over 35,000 current FBI employees and the many thousands more former FBI employees who similarly have access to or knowledge of non-public information. The report did clear Comey of one longstanding area of speculation. It said that investigators found no evidence that Comey provided classified information to the press. Comey noted that Finding in a tweet after the report was released, um, uh, uh, calling for an apology from those who defamed him, overlooking all of the other elements of the report that quite clearly uh, did, in fact, say he was uh, guilty of wrongdoing. While Republicans on Capitol Hill said Thursday they believe the searing reprimand of former FBI Director James Comey by the Justice Department Inspector General is only the start of a series of blows to the reputations of key law enforcement figures. This is the first of what I expect will be several more ugly and condemning rebukes of senior DOJ and FBI officials regarding their actions and biases toward the Trump campaign in 2016. That's a quote from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Justice Department's Inspector General Michael Horowitz released that report today saying Comey, whom the president tr- fired in 2017, violated bureau policy. After Comey, uh, the Comey report was released, North Carolina Representative Mark Meadows, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, said this is the first of what we can expect to be more disclosures holding former FBI and DOJ officials accountable for their improper conduct against President Trump and his campaign. I look forward to those findings. Ohio Representative Jim Jordan, another prominent Freedom Caucus member and the top Republican on the House Oversight Committee said, I am grateful that the Inspector General brought these issues to light and look forward to his and U.S. Attorney John Durham's findings related to abuses of the FISA process. Horowitz has acknowledged that his office was already reviewing potential surveillance abuses by the FBI during the Russia investigation. Earlier this year, Attorney General Bill Barr also assigned Durham, the U.S. attorney for Connecticut, to examine alleged improper government surveillance on the Trump campaign in 2016. For his part, Comey on Thursday responded to the report by insisting that he is not a liar or a leaker and saying an apology for his from his critics would be 
be nice. Republicans argued the report only raised more questions. This further cements the need for us to get to the root of how the Russia investigation began. Georgia Representative Doug Collins, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, said it's time to restore Americans' confidence that federal law enforcement is committed to justice and free from political gamesmanship. Well, the Justice Department's internal review of the Russia investigation was focusing on transcripts of reading or recordings rather before uh, made before um, by at least one government source who met with former Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos overseas in 2016, specifically looking at why certain exculpatory material from them was not presented in subsequent applications for surveillance warrants. The transcripts were classified according to sources, but Barr likely would have access to those uh, documents after the president's move in May to approve declassification of documents related to the surveillance of his campaign during the 2016 election. Meanwhile, former FBI official Andrew McCabe, who then Attorney General Jeff Sessions fired last year after an inspector general report, found that he misled investigators about his role in the leaks to the media, has been awaiting a decision by federal prosecutors over whether the Department of Justice will charge him. A source close to the process says that um, uh, McCabe has had a target on his back because of the the Justice Department Inspector General's findings against him over actions during the Hillary Clinton email investigation, as well as his role in the surveillance warrants against President Trump's campaign associated uh, uh, associates rather during the Russia investigation. And the Democratic National Committee passed a resolution on Saturday praising the values of religiously unaffiliated Americans as the largest religious group within the Democratic Party. The resolution, which was unanimously passed at the DNC summer meeting on August the 24th in San Francisco, was championed by the Secular Coalition of America, an organization that lobbies on behalf of atheists, agnostics, and humanists on public policy. The group celebrated the DNC's move as the first time a majority party in Embraced American nonbelievers. Religious unaffiliated Americans overwhelmingly share the Democratic Party's values, said the resolution, which adds uh, they should advocate for rational public policy based on sound science and universal humanistic values. Sarah Levin, a director of the governmental affairs for the Secular Coalition, praised it as a way to ensure that policy is driven by science and evidence, not sectarian beliefs. The move comes as Democratic presidential candidates have ramped up their religious rhetoric on the campaign trail, but the party announced it is targeting non-religious voters to try to beat President Trump, who solidified the evangelical vote in 2016. America was founded as a secular government charged with representing and protecting the freedom of people of all faiths and none, Levin added. I'm proud to see the Democratic Party take that to heart by bringing secular Americans into the fold. Political pundits have pointed out Democrats' so-called God problem in the past and their efforts to solve it. In 2012, the last election, Democrats won. A headline from the convention read, Democrats boo God. In 2016, attendees heckled a preacher during the opening prayer. And on Saturday, Democrats took a shot at believers who use religious liberty to threaten the civil rights of LGBTQ Americans. The Freedom From Religion Foundation's co-president Annie Laurie Gaylor called the resolution a political landmark that is long overdue. The Wisconsin-based Freedom From Religion Foundation is optimistic that the DNC resolution is a sign of bigger and better things to come for free thinkers and would like to see every party at every level of government atop similar resolutions. And that does paint at least a a portion of the unfolding portrait of the um, 2020 presidential election. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Jolene Philo. She is 
the co-author of Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families, the five love languages for parents raising children with disabilities. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as any parent will tell you, raising children is daunting, but raising a child with special needs brings a new set of challenges. Days often are filled with doctor's appointments and meetings with educators, handling outside caregivers and therapists, and caring for other children. Parents may find themselves depleted and their marriages strained, but there is hope. The demands of caring for children with medical conditions, developmental or cognitive delays, disabilities, behavior issues on the uh, autism spectrum and beyond um, can be daunting. But in the book, Sharing Love Abundantly with Special Needs Families, uh, my guest and her co-author offer good news. The good news is caregiving parents who know about the and implement the love language uh, languages say that they're um, a simple and effective way to fill a spouse's love tank and reinforce the glue that bonds them together. But beyond the husband and wife sharing the language with one another, the book goes on to sh- talk about how to share and discover the love language of your children with disabilities. It's a, a tremendous book. My next guest is Jolene Philo. She is the author of five resource books for the special needs community. She co-authored Every Child Welcome, a ministry handbook for including kids with special needs with uh, Kate Weatherby. Uh, During her 25-year career as an educator, she collaborated with special education teachers to maintain children in her elementary classroom. She left education in 2003 to become a writer and speaker and co-authored along with Dr. Gary Chapman, best-selling author of the Five Love Languages series, Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families, the Five Love Languages for Parents Raising Children with Disabilities. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Your first chapter is titled, How a Baby with Special Needs Changed the Way We Love. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience raising a child with a life-threatening medical condition. Yes, our son was born in 1982 in May, uh, and it was pretty evident shortly after his birth that he was having some difficulties breathing. He was um, transferred from Spearfish, South Dakota, where he was born, to Rapid City, and that's where they discovered that his trachea, or his esophagus, was not connected to his stomach, but hooked into his trachea. So he was life-flighted before he was a day old to Omaha, where he had life-saving surgery. And to make a very long story short, over the next five years, he's had a total of seven surgeries and Mm. hundreds of medical procedures and tests and um, just all sorts of things to make his digestive system work uh, correctly. After that, he did pretty well, and he's now an adult on his own and with his own family and a job. But those first five years especially were pretty daunting and difficult for us and had a great deal of sleep deprivation included in them. Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, as I mentioned, the title of the chapter suggests that having a baby with special needs changed the way we love. Explain what you mean by that. Well, what really happened was I, I began to realize, I think my, my husband understood this better than I did from the very beginning, that marriage and love is a commitment um, no matter what. And he finally sat me down one day when I was pretty distraught about our son and reminded me that he had married me for the long haul. And no matter what happened, he was going to be with me through it. And I realized at that point that for us to provide the family that our son needed and then later our daughter, who was born six years afterwards, 
we needed to learn to love in a more committed, um, faith-filled way than, than we had previously. We always went to church, but we didn't really understand the hard questions and we had to get real serious about our faith and learn to love like Jesus loved. Mm, mm. Now, several books have been written about the love languages. In fact, your co-author uh, is the best-selling author of the Five Love Languages series. Why one specifically for parents of children with special needs? I mean, you sort of touched on that already, but I want to ask you specifically, why uh, center on this particular family unit where at least one of the children has special needs? Well, when you have a um, family with a child who has disabilities or special needs, there's a lot more caregiving going on for a lot longer period of time. And whenever you're in a caregiving situation, there are a number of strains um, on the caregiver, and if the caregiver is married, on the marriage, there's time constraints, financial constraints. You deal with grief and guilt, a lot of worry about what's going to happen to your child in the future. Sometimes you have to be separated for the child to receive treatment. Uh, there, there's a lot of isolation often for parents because they can't get out with their child. And then there can be a lack of support from the people around the family, mainly because others don't really know what to do to help. And with all of those strains, it's really important for families to have easy, um, doable, and effective tools to improve their marriages and all the relationships within that family. And the love languages is one way to do that. Uh, in fact, Dr. Chapman said that he often, when he goes out and speaks about the love languages, often has parents who come up later and say to him, you know, we really like what you're doing, but we need to know how to apply this our family and to use with our child who has special needs. And he's always said, I don't have a child with special needs. I don't have grandchildren with special needs. I'm not equipped to write this book by myself. So when through a series of what I consider divine nudges, God brought us together, we were able to write the book together. And we're glad you um, you did. In the book, you write about the word said, which may not be familiar to some of our listeners. First of all, define that for us and how it relates to special needs parenting. Sure, chesed is <clears throat> excuse me is a Jewish term that talks about the merciful, intentional love that intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. Of course, we can see that as the love God has for us, but it's the love He calls us to in our relationships too. And in a, a special needs family, there's a lot of need <clears throat> for intentional love intervening on behalf of one another because. It's kind of a tag team relationship. One parent gets weary and the mm-hmm. other one has to intervene and pick up the caregiving duties for a little bit so that the other, the other spouse can kind of refresh and rejuvenate and then take over for the other person. And it needs to be intentional, as has said, says, because otherwise it just doesn't get done. Now, you mentioned uh, the word that I think many parents with special needs can relate to, and that is just the exhaustion of uh, of constant care for the uh, child with uh, disabilities, for the, um, I, I like the phrase that you use, typical children that may also be in the household, and certainly for one another. This would put a tremendous strain on parents because exhaustion um, can make it much more difficult for uh, adults who love one another to express that love. Now, so for parents who do have um, a special needs child who are tested because of the strains that uh, that um, that requires, um, how can a couple continue to keep the, the love tank, as the phrase 
um, is uh, is said uh, to keep it filled. Where does the the resource come from to make that possible and to be intentional about it? Well, there's a few things that you can do. First of all, you need to be familiar with the five love languages, and mm-hmm. they are words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. And then once you know what they are, uh, spouses need to figure out what their love languages are and learn about their partner's love language. Because the whole premise of the love languages is that we each have a primary love language, but we may not speak the same love language as our spouse. And so we speak to them in our language, they speak to us in theirs, and neither person feels loved unless they learn to be bilingual and speak speak one another's languages. So once you've figured that out, and you can use um, the, the quizzes that are in the book to figure out your love language, or you can go to the website, fivelovelanguages.com, and take the online quiz, then the book provides lots of ideas about how to easily and inexpensively speak your spouse's love language. And it can be as simple as sitting next to each other on the couch and sharing a bowl of popcorn, and if your spouse's physical or spouse's love language is physical touch, you make sure you brush their fingers now and then when you dip your fingers together into the popcorn bowl. Or if your spouse's love language is acts of service, you might serve dessert on fancy dishes just to show them that you care a little bit more. So it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be expensive, but it does need to be intentional and it does take practice. And as you mentioned, there are quizzes in the book to help uh, identify what each spouse's love languages are. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Jolene Philo. She, along with Dr. Gary Chapman, co-authored this tremendous book, Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families, The Five Love Languages for Parents Raising Children with Disabilities. In addition to understanding one another's love language as a married couple, they also encourage you to discover the love language of your children. We'll get into that when we return as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about sharing love abundantly in special needs families, the five love languages for parents raising children with disabilities. The book is written by Dr. Gary Chapman and his co-author Jolene Philo, who joins us today to continue our conversation about this remarkable resource to help parents uh, through this season in life that can be uh, daunting. Now, what encouragement do you have for the family that may not have a lot of external support from others, family, friends, uh, and are pretty much going it alone? Well, first of all, I would encourage them to reach out and try and make some friends and communicate with family. Um, I think there are more people out there willing to help than what parents expect. The problem is um, other people don't know what to do. They don't know how to approach you. They don't know what kind of help you need. And so I often encourage parents to create a list of things and ways others could help them out and just have that list ready. So when someone says to you, is there anything I can do to help, Mm. you have some ideas for them. I think that's so common. We want to help. We don't know where to begin. And we make statements like that. And and um, if you're ready to give an answer, then people are excited about the prospect of coming alongside when that uh, that's made clear. Now, what are the seven threats uh, that can harm a marriage relationship that special needs parents often face? Um, those include time constraints because caregiving takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So there's not as much time for spouses to um, devote to one another. Financial constraints, having kids with disabilities and special needs is expensive. There's extra expenses involved with that. 
parents often feel guilt and grief. Maybe they feel guilty because they think they caused their child's disability or they feel guilty because they are grieving more than their other spouses. And there's always that element of grief because the child parents thought they had is not the child they have. There's also often a sense of isolation. Parents don't feel other people understand what they're going through. And it's hard for families to get out and about if they have a child with disabilities. There can be that geographic separation that I mentioned earlier. So one spouse is home um, working and the other spouse is off caring for the child who's in the hospital. Parents can worry a lot about what's going to happen to their child in the future or will my child make it to adulthood. And then there's the lack of support that we've already discussed. Yeah, yeah. How can being fluent in one spouse's love language help um, parents who are facing these seven threats that... um it seems overwhelming to me. Yeah. Well, as one of the parents I interviewed for the book, and, and over 40 families were interviewed for this book because I didn't know everything about how to use the love languages in families. But one of the moms said that, you know, stress is always high when you're in a family, a caregiving family, and there's a child with special needs or disabilities. Your anxiety and stress level is already going to be a little higher than other families. But the five love languages, when we use them and speak them to our spouse and to our child, help lower that anxiety because we feel more love. And when we feel love, we aren't as anxious as we are when we feel unloved and needy. How can the love languages be helpful um, to special needs parents in particular in uh, better understanding their own special needs kids? Well, once you understand what your child's love language is, and that can be a little bit tricky when you're talking about disabilities and special needs, but once you've figured out that child's love language, in the same way as between spouses, you're able to communicate love better to your child. And, of course, children need love. They need to feel love in order to thrive, in order to heal in order to grow, and in order to learn. So when we can speak our child's love language effectively to them, we help them grow in all those ways. Now, when you're talking about a nonverbal child, is that still possible, more challenging? And uh, just give us an example. It is a little bit more challenging because, of course, you can't ask your child questions about what they like. Instead, you have to do a lot more observation. And one of the parents I interviewed came up with three questions that she and her husband asked themselves to help figure out the love language of their daughter who has autism. She is verbal, but her verbal skills are not highly developed. And so they learned to ask these questions. What calms my child? Where does my child choose to spend her time? And what motivates my child? And they spent several weeks trying out the different love languages with their child and then asking those three questions as they tried each love language with her. And eventually they were able to figure out that her major love language was physical touch. Now for a child who's five and a teenager who's 14 and a grown child who's 30, does the love language change over time? The love languages, according to Dr. Chapman, do not change over time. They remain the same. But I think sometimes depending on the circumstances around the child, especially if we're talking about a child who's hospitalized or having to have a lot of therapies or going through some um, difficult transitions, different needs come to the forefront, and so it may look like that child uh, has a different love language. So if a child is going to go in for surgery, they may need a lot more physical touch just to feel safe. That doesn't mean their love language has changed, but to feel safe, they need that 
sense of closeness. And so that might make it seem like their love language has changed. In the same way, um, a child may need a lot of verbal reassurance when they begin school or when they're starting a new task, but that doesn't necessarily mean their love language changed. That means they just need a lot of verbal encouragement while that new thing is being introduced in their life. Now, how can parents use the love languages with their other typical kids? Is there a dramatic difference between the way you approach a special needs kid and the typical kid in a household? No, kids are kids, and so you're going to use the love languages in similar ways. The major difference would be if the child with special needs has some developmental delays, it's important for parents to think about the child's developmental age rather than their chronological age. So if they have a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old, but the 14-year-old has a developmental level um, of about eight years, the parents may use a quite different way of delivering the love language to that child with the eight-year-old developmental level than with the typical sibling who's um, at a 13-year-old level. So it's not so much a difference in how you deliver them. It's just making sure that the delivery is appropriate for how where they are developmentally. Now, are there special challenges in the household when the typical child um, might feel neglected because of the care and attention required uh, by the special needs child? And does that require uh, uh, an unusual uh, kind of approach in, in, in being intentional and making sure all of the children in the household uh, get what they need? Yes, that can be an issue. And actually, I was raised in a home where my father was disabled the entire time I was growing up. So my sister, brother, and I were asked to do a lot of caregiving tasks that most children our age didn't have to deal with. And so I, I'm cognizant of how that can affect a typical sibling. They are often given responsibilities that aren't quite appropriate for what children really need. And what children really need is time to be children. And so it's important for parents to create a space and a time for their typical siblings to just be kids to remove those extra um, duties from their life for a while so they can have that carefree existence that is what childhood should give each of us. So when parents practice the love languages with with the typical siblings, they want to make sure to do it in a place or an atmosphere where the kids, the typical siblings, just get to be kids for a while. Now, one of the things that you encourage your readers to do, parents, is to put together a care team so that they can practice self-care Uh, and time as a couple. Um, Describe how parents might go about doing that and how we might come alongside them in their effort to provide that environment. Well, on the one hand, parents can reach out to people they know, maybe extended family members, neighbors who seem to be interested in the family, or friends or church family, and ask them if they would consider being part of the care team and offering to train parents and and members of that care team to uh, help with their child. Or those extended family members, those friends, that church family, can ask the parents if they can create a, be part of and create a care team for the family. And then it, it's really important for those the care team members to get trained, to get familiar with the child with disabilities and special needs, to learn how to spend some time with them so the parents can get away. And I always encourage having at least two members on that care team so they can both go over to relieve the, the parent for a little bit 
and then maybe one of the members of the, the care team can spend time with the child and the other member of the care team can then go for a walk with the parent or they can go shopping or out for coffee for a little bit. And then the next week, switch that up. And the other care team member watches the child, and the the one that had watched the child previously goes out with the parent. That does a couple things. It builds friendships for the parent, and it also builds friendships for the child and expands that child's world and gives them a much richer, more vibrant life. Now, we're just about out of time, but I want to just mention to our listeners that one of the things that you write about in the book is uh, for the parents to share the child's love language with the therapists and other medical professionals to help uh, with their treatment plan. Um, a, a, a tremendous suggestion and how to go about doing that. Once again, the book is titled Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families, the Five Love Languages for Parents Raising Children with Disabilities. Very practical uh, to help uh, along the way. I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated it and thank enjoyed you. talking with you. Again, Jolene Philo is the co-author of Sharing Love Abundantly in Special Needs Families. Gary Chapman, Dr. Chapman, is the uh, co-author, and of course, he's the founder of the Five Love Languages series, the subtitle of this book being The Five Love Languages for Parents Raising Children with Disabilities. The book, by the way, is published by Northfield Publishers. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. James Blend is our producer. Chris Williams engineering today's program. Well, Iran is still feeling the pain after U.S. cyber military forces brought down a database under, uh, you rather used by its Revolutionary Guard Corps to target ships in the Persian Gulf. This is hours after the Islamic Republic shot down an American drone, according to officials. The retaliatory cyber attack was on the 20th of June. It focused on a system that Iran used to determine which oil tankers and marine traffic it should go after. That's according to a U.S. Senior official speaking to the New York Times, as of Thursday, Iran has yet to recover all of the lost data in the attack and is trying to restore military communication networks linked to the database. The newspaper went on to say the president reportedly signed off on the U.S. Cyber Command strike, though the government has not publicly acknowledged it happened, according to the Post. Uh, As a matter of policy and for operational security, we do not discuss cyberspace operations, intelligence or planning, even though I'm discussing it right now. And it was in the paper, but that was, of course, According to a Pentagon spokesperson, a U.S. official who spoke to The Washington Post also noted that the cyber attack was designed to be damaging for Iran, but not to the extent that would further escalate tensions between the two sides. Despite the attack, Iran has remained active in the Strait of Hormuz, seizing the Brit- uh, British oil tanker Stena Impero in mid-July. The previous week, uh, Iran attempted to seize another British oil tanker, but backed off after a British warship approached. U.S. government agency that birthed the network, uh, which ultimately became the Internet, is apparently in need of an underground layer and fast by tomorrow, to be more specific. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, which has famously been involved in a range of projects, including uh, neural implants for U.S. soldiers, made in uh, its needs known in a Wednesday tweet that prompted some suspicious replies. Attention, city dwellers. We're interested in identifying university-owned or commercially managed underground urban tunnels and facilities able to host research and experimentation, the tweet read. Adding its short notice, we're asking for responses by August the 30th 
at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Well, the tweet included a link to a request for information form and some stark images, a subway station devoid of humans, a dark parking garage, and some type of underground bunker. The government agency elaborated a bit in a second tweet. One person responded, this sounds both exciting and ominous, to which the DARPA account replied, even to us. Well, that cleared things up. Although the solicitation might conjure dystopian visions or zombie apocalypse preparations, a representative for DARPA told Fox News that the request is related to uh, finding locations for its subterranean challenge urban circuit. It's a competition that is examining new approaches and technologies that could help first responders and the military navigate tunnels, the urban underground and cave networks. Do we have those around here? Per the announcement on the Federal Business Opportunities website, the RFI is intended solely for information and planning purposes and does not constitute a formal solicitation for proposals. Complex urban underground infrastructure can present significant challenges for situational awareness in time-sensitive scenarios, such as active combat operations or disaster response. That's what Jared, uh, Jared Adams, uh, DARPA's chief of communications, uh, told Fox News via email. One Twitter user joked, we are definitely not looking for new places to keep all the um, Dumogorgans, referencing the monster in Stranger Things. I have no idea. DARPA responded with this, please, Demogorgons are such a department of energy thing. <laughs> the team uh, competing in the subterranean challenge are vying for several million dollars in prizes. Wow, I want to be on that team. Auto manufacturer giant Toyota announced it's recalling 191,000 cars in the United States and Japan to fix defective Tankata brand airbags that may not work properly in a crash. The Toyota Motor North American representative said that certain 2003 through 2008 Corolla models and 2005-2008 Matrix models were affected by the flaw. The involved vehicles are equipped with a front passenger airbag assembly containing an inflator installed as a replacement under a prior recall, the spokesperson said. There is a possibility that the airbag may not unfold as designed under high pressure conditions, which, of course, is when the airbag is deployed, resulting in airbag internal pressure rising differently than expected. Well, in a separate statement, Toyota explained that if one of the affected airbags deploys, there is a possibility that it could be damaged and such damage could cause the airbag to not properly inflate. And this would increase the risk of the occupant being injured in the event of a crash. The recall includes a whopping 135,000 vehicles in the U.S. Toyota didn't say if the airbags in question were tied to any injuries, but this isn't the first time Takata has been involved in airbag defects. In 2018, you might recall, an Arizona man was killed by an exploring Takata, rather exploding Takata airbag inflator, bringing the death toll um, for Takata to at least 24. Automakers have been gradually replacing Takata airbags for years in response. Toyota said it will um, contact affected Corolla and Matrix owners through first-class mail and offer to replace the airbags at no cost. To see if a vehicle needs repair, the spokesperson said, drivers can visit toyota.com slash recall and uh, enter their vehicle identification number or license plate information to determine if they are among those who must be replaced. Well, academia today is not for the faint-hearted. So says a veteran professor who was headed to, uh, rather head of child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Louisville School of Medicine until he was doomed and then let go for making public comments on gender identity. You know, I really was an academic physician, not a politician. I wasn't there with an agenda or an activist position, Dr. Alan Josephson, who also was a professor of psychiatry, told the Daily Signal in a recent phone interview. 
And what I want to do is what I started to do years ago, which is practice child and adolescent psychiatry and do it all, do it as well as I could. And universities who have people like myself there must respect my free speech rights, regardless of what I would say. Well, that's not how it turned out for Josephson, a medical doctor in his mid sixties, who previously was on the faculties of schools of medicine at the Medical College of Georgia and the University of Minnesota. While still a division chief at the University of Louisville, he spoke in October of 2017 at the Heritage Foundation as part of a panel discussion on gender dysphoria in children, understanding the science and medicine. It wasn't a political or public policy discussion. It was a scientific and medical discussion. After hearing about his remarks, four of or five fellow University of Louisville faculty members who worked with Josephson asked the university to discipline or punish him for his medical opinion. Seven weeks after his appearance, university officials demoted him from division chief to faculty member in the division he had headed for nearly 15 years. Ultimately, the public university in Kentucky let him go as of June the 30th this year after announcing in February that it would not renew his contract. He says, I experienced a lot of hostility in my work environment, and that continued for well over a year and my contract wasn't renewed. Um, And this was in spite of the fact that I'd... uh, had perfect marks on the two most recent performance evaluations, and my perspective was asking probing questions as part of an academic job description. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom, a legal nonprofit that works to protect religious liberty, notes that Josephson had earned perfect marks on his 2014, 2015, 2016 annual re- uh, reviews. The organization filed a federal lawsuit in May against the University of Louisville administrators on behalf of Professor Josephson. Doing those kinds of things shouldn't disqualify me from academic service, he said of the speaking engagement. We were allowed to do that in a university appointment. We're encouraged to do that, but... Um, to be out teaching, if you will, to the community. Well, Travis Barman, legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, said when Dr. Josephson spoke at the event, he simply noted, based on his research and clinical experience, that when treating children with gender dysphoria, medical professionals should first seek to understand and treat the psychological issues that often cause this confusion before pursuing more radical, aggressive treatment. How dare he sound so reasonable? That's how other psychological issues in children are treated. It's not unusual practice. This is what's typically done, let alone ones where the more radical treatments pose such grave and permanent consequence. The university made it clear that it was uh, these views that precipitated everything that happened later. Well, the university typically does not comment on pending litigation. Uh, The school's director of media relations said in an email when asked, The case likely will be heard in court, although the University of Louisville filed a motion to dismiss a portion of it. Uh, Josephson, who lives in the Louisville area with his wife, um, said it's important for academics who are younger than himself to have the courage to speak up. I had the backdrop of a successful career. The challenge for many academics right now, particularly those who are younger, is that their careers could be on the line. They have not been able to do all that they wanted to do, and so it's really challenging, and each case is different. Well, Josephson maintains uh, that those with conservative views on gender dysphoria should be able to express those views without fear of uh, retribution. I can't make any general statements, he said, uh, of the challenge, but added, I do think, though, it's important if you feel something within you uh, to not be silent. Find a way to express yourself as best you can. Find people who might be academically open to discuss this, but this is not For the faint-hearted. Well, many universities no longer are marketplaces of ideas, he said, but instead vacuums where only one point of view is recognized and accepted. 
Universities are supposed to be places where you can exchange ideas and vigorous discussion, go back and forth. This marketplace of ideas as a metaphor is great, and that's how science proceeds. That's how we make progress. Unfortunately, many academic settings, including my own, are becoming more of an activist setting, meaning you're not testing ideas, promoting the results of research. You're asking for someone to agree with you, essentially, or else. Josephson cautioned that universities need to stop being about groupthink and instead embrace debate and differences of opinion. Tolerance is a two-way street. In fact, it requires a two-way street to be tolerance. You've got to go back and forth, he said. That's what universities are, or at least were. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 24 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a former Google employee has gone public with claims of election manipulation, intimidation, political bias at the hands of the tech giant, including blacklisting of certain websites, including the Christian Post. On Wednesday uh, Wednesday of a week ago, investigative journalism group Project Veritas released an interview in which whistleblower Zachary Voorhees reveals he delivered roughly 950 pages of documents to the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division, demonstrating that Google manipulated its algorithms in a way that biased its search engine against conservative media, Christian media, and nonprofit groups and Republicans. A Google employee for eight years, Voorhees, who refers to a situation as David and Goliath, a reference, of course, to the Old Testament story, said he decided to come forward after realizing something dark and nefarious was going on with the company. I saw that they were uh, making really quick moves, that they were intending to sculpt the information landscape so that uh, they could create their own version of what was objectively true, he said. I realized that they were going to not only tamper with the elections, but use that tampering with the elections to essentially overthrow the United States. Now, that's a big statement. Well, the document released by Voorhees included a news blacklist site for Google Now, which he explained is a blacklist that restricts certain websites from appearing on news feeds for some Android Google products. Uh, The list includes a number of websites, including the Christian Post, Newsbusters, Life News, Patheos, Glenn Beck, among hundreds of others. According to the document, some sites are listed because of a high user block rate. Uh, These documents were available to every single employee within the company that was um, full time, he says. And so as a full time employee at the company, I just searched for some key words and these documents started popping out or popping up. And so once I started finding one document, I started finding key words for other documents and I. Uh, would enter that in and continue this cycle until I had a treasure trove of archives of documents that clearly spelled out the system that they're attempting to do in a very clear language. Voorhees said it's um, clear that Google has a political bias, adding that the tech company is playing both sides of the game. On the one hand, they're saying that they are a platform and that they are immune from being sued for the content they host on their website. He said, on the other hand, they're acting as a publisher in which they're deterring, or rather, yeah, deterring the editorial agenda of these certain companies, and they're applying that. If people don't fall in line with their editorial agenda, their news articles get deranked. And if people do fall in line with their editorial agenda, it gets boosted and pushed to the top. Voorhees first spoke to uh, with Project Veritas anonymously back in June when he leaked a number of internal Google documents revealing algorithmic unfairness and search rankings. In one document, a Google employee and member of Google's Transparency and Ethics Group refers to conservative and libertarian commentators, including Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro, as Nazis. In a video of the interview, Voorhees warned Google is not an objective source for information. And it doesn't come as too much of a surprise to some. 
Interviewer James O'Keefe then typed the word men can and women can in the search bar. The suggestions for men can included phrases like men can have babies, men can get pregnant, men have can have periods, while the phrases for women can include women can vote, women can do anything, women can be drafted. It's part of the social justice narrative, Voorhees said. Also in the video, Google employee and head responsible innovation, Jen Gemini, or Jenai, said, we have gotten accusations on around um, fairness is that we're unfair to conservatives because we're choosing what we define as credible news sources. And those sources don't necessarily overlap with conservative sources. So we're getting accusations of uh, fair from one side. The Christian Post contacted Google for comment, explaining why this news outlet and other media and pro-life websites were on their internal blacklist for Google now. We will update... Um, that information as it's made available. In the latest uh, Project Veritas video, Voorhees reveals that after he initially came forward, Google sent him a letter containing several demands and ordering him to cease and desist. After having been identified by an anonymous account on social media as a leaker, Voorhees was approached by law enforcement at his residence and received a call from Google, which prompted a wellness check. Voorhees also claimed Google attempted to establish that he had a mental problem, which he said is a common way the company intimidates former employees who go rogue. While other Google employees are scared of the company's practices, Voorhees says, he called for greater transparency from Google, adding, I'm hoping that those who want to do something will be compelled to act. If I didn't do this, then I had, um, I'd have to live with myself for the rest of my life, he said. People aren't going to understand what I'm talking about until they see the documents. But it's really that bad. Well, after the release of Project Veritas' initial Google investigation, Janai posted on Medium saying, Google has reportedly been clear that it works to be trustworthy source of information without regard to political viewpoint. In fact, Google has no notion of political ideology in its ranking. Evidence to the contrary. Well, there you have it. Um, I didn't mention earlier, but portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, yesterday I shared some of the events that are going on in Israel and the suggestion that the declaration of war has already been made and things could erupt very quickly in that country. And, of course, what happens there happens virtually all around the world. Well, Wallace Henley um, asked, was, has been asked rather the question by many Americans who have a sense that the country, the United States, is on an unstoppable nosedive into chaos and crash inexorably linked to Israel and given some of our other challenges. And he writes that in numerous recent speaking engagements and participation in broadcast talk shows across America, the same questions have come up again and again. Where are we? What's happening to us? Where are we going? Nowhere, answers the nihilist. Wherever, uh, replies the stoic. There are many other variations on the replies in between, depending on the philosophical viewpoint. There are, however, many who survey history from the perch of their own periods and see broad themes cycling around the line of finite time. These range from the second century B.C. Greek philosopher Polybius uh, to classical historians of the modern era like Will Durant, Oswald Spengler, um, Arnold Teubney, um, Alexander Tyler, Robert Strauss, Neil Howe, to name just a few. Historians immersed in the secular worldview don't like historical cycles theory because such ideas imply something outside time, transcendent with respect to finite time, ranging from 
astrological alignments to God himself. Well, the Bible, however, reveals a cyclical pattern based on interactions between the Lord and the Old Testament Israel, a prototypical nation whose experience can instruct any and all nations in all historical periods. Now, the United States is not Israel. No other nation is. And this isn't the suggestion that somehow we have either replaced uh, Israel or uh, are a reflection of it. But uh, as has been written before, um, there are stages revealed in Israel's history that might be instructive in our own. These are um, alliterations for the sake of easy memorization. There's ratification of a nation and all of the, the consensus establishment in contemporary America, the entertainment establishment, information establishment, academia, political establishment, corporate establishment, and a critical mass of the general population agree that God, who has revealed himself in time and space, is the true God, the foundation of the nation and the being of whom both the leaders and the people are accountable. That's where it begins. Then there's the relapse of memory. In Israel's experience, this begins with the death of Joshua and his generation. Generally, the consensus establishments turn from their belief in God and the critical mass of the population centered on the Lord begins to fade. Then there's the rebellion period, turning away from God in behavior, ethics, and moral value. And this is the nature of this stage. Lawlessness abounds along with apostasy. Will Durant described it accurately. Conduct deprived of its religious supports deteriorates into Epicurean chaos. Then there's the refiner's fire. In this stage, the consequences of forgetting God and the rebellion that follows begin to fall upon the nation. Israel experiences spiritual and societal lethargy and falls into captivity. For modern times, Durant writes that life itself, shorn of consoling faith, becomes a burden alike to conscience poverty uh, uh, and uh, to weary wealth. And then there is remembrance. Things get so bad in the refiner's fire stage that individuals in the nation begin wondering what has gone wrong, what was left behind. They find one another and together begin to search for lost values. Prophets arise, give guidance, but are persecuted. Nevertheless, they point the way back to God, his kingdom, and the values it represents. And then repentance. A remnant of the nation's populace grows into a critical mass and begins to repent for its own sins as well as the sins of its society. They stand in the gap for the land. You'll find that in Ezekiel 22 and elsewhere. God hears from heaven, forgives their sins, and begins to heal their nation. Second Chronicles 7.14. And then revival. Uh, in the book, uh, Call Down Lightning, God listens to the uh, prayers. It's recalled that God listens to the prayers of his remnant, releases spiritual renewal throughout the nation. The number turning back to God swells. Culture is transformed. Benjamin Franklin describes the atmosphere of New England during the Great Awakening when he wrote that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Oh, for that day. And then there's rest. The culmination is expressed in the words of Judges 3.11 and other passages. And the land had rest for 40 years, a generation. During the rest stage, ratification of the nation's beliefs in and focus on God is recovered, sustained until the cycle begins again. Well, Abraham Lincoln, in the eyes of many, America's greatest president, said that it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. So to return to the original question, where is contemporary America as measured by the historical stages revealed in the Holy Scriptures? Well, we are deep in the refiner's fire period, and already things are so bad, there is a stirring here, and there 
among disparate voices and groups wondering what we have forgotten. This will grow into a remnant that will expand into a critical mass. We must not fall into shallow triumphalism. There is some suffering ahead, but remembrance, repentance, and revival are also in our future. All this starts in the church. The health of a nation is in direct proportion to the health of the church in the nation. And then he urges readers to wake up, church. You hold the keys of the kingdom. Again, that cycle is ratification where there's an immediate or an early embrace of uh, biblical principles. Then there's the relapse of memory, rebellion, the refiner's fire, remembrance, repentance, revival, and then rest. And he suggests we are in that cycle. Now, this is uh, an interesting uh, example that we find in the history of Israel. It doesn't necessarily reflect where the United States stands in relationship to other nations and whether or not we will continue to dominate, but it does say something about the spiritual life of a nation and whether or not we will have a robust um, association with one another. And this cycle, which we've seen in Scripture, may in fact be the course that we are about to take. I thought it was interesting, particularly in view of what we were talking about yesterday, and I wished I had had time to share it yesterday, immediately following our discussion of Israel, but nonetheless wanted to get that in, uh, in today. Well, the Evangelical Free Church of America has changed its positions on end times doctrine. The denomination recently voted to drop the word premillennial from its statement of faith. So what prompted the change? Well, the uh, uh, Evangelical Free Church of America says we say that we major on the majors and minor on the minors. In their internal document, the denomination noted that they did not uh, take a stance on the Reformed versus Arminian view of conversion, the age of the earth, infant and adult baptism, and whether the gifts of the Spirit had ceased or were all active. In light of that, we believe there is a significant inconsistency in continuing to include premillennialism as a required theological position when it is clear that the nature of the millennium is one of those doctrines over which theologians, equally knowledgeable, equally committed to the Bible, and equally evangelical, have disagreed through the history of the Church. The Church has held multiple positions on the end times held by the early Church Fathers, says Daniel Hummel, who's an historian of U.S. religion and foreign relations. He says, but in a more recent evangelical history, post-millennialism dominated the early part of the American history and colonial history. He says uh, people like Jonathan Edwards saw revivals as inaugurating the millennial, as bringing uh, this deeply Christian era that would last a thousand years and then conclude with Jesus personally returning. Then after the carnage of the Civil War, Americans became more pessimistic, which in turn affected their eschatological views. Uh, premillennialism became sort of the main tradition and the air that a lot of evangelicals breathed throughout the 20th century. Hummel joined digital media producer Morgan Lee and editor Mark Galley to discuss the rise and fall of premillennialism and the influence of uh, left behind and the significance of this decision by the denomination, which can be found online at Christianity Today. Uh, the headline is Another Denomination Changes Its End Times Doctrine, but it's an interesting overview to see where the church has fallen on this uh, subject over uh, over the stretch of recent, relatively recent history. And you can find it online again at Christianity Today. Dot com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Liberty Council is um, in court, or I should say was in court yesterday, presenting oral arguments regarding its motion for summary judgment requesting the United States District Court of Boston rule that Boston resident Hal Shirtleff 
And his uh, Christian civic organization, Camp Constitution, can fly the Christian flag on Boston's City Hall flagpoles on the same terms as other civic and cultural organizations. Well, the city refers to its flagpoles as public forums and allows private organizations to temporarily raise their own flags on the flagpoles almost once per week. However, the city censored the religious viewpoint of Camp Constitution's flag because it is called the Christian flag. Well, the undisputed facts reveal that Boston has allowed more than 300 flag raisings by private organizations on the city city hall flagpoles, including the Turkish flag, which uh, depicts the Islamic star and crescent, the Portuguese flag, which uses religious imagery. City officials have also never denied the messages communicated by the Chinese Progressive Association, the LGBT rainbow flag of Boston Pride, and a transgender pink and blue flag. The flags from other countries, such as Albania, Brazil, Ethiopia, Italy, Panama, Peru, Portugal, uh, Puerto Rico, which is in another country, but Mexico, and uh, as well as the communist China and Cuban governments, they've all been approved to fly on the city's flagpoles. Well, the Christian flag is the only flag that's been censored. It It would have been raised only during a one-hour event held at the Camp Constitution on the 17th of September in observation of Constitution Day. To celebrate the civic and social contributions of the Christian community to the city of Boston, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, religious tolerance, the rule of law, and the U.S. Constitution. Well, the city's discrimination against Camp Constitution in this one hour of flag flying, its religious viewpoint is unconstitutional and must end, says uh, Matt Staver of the Liberty Council, where the city of Boston never censored numerous flags from private organizations. It cannot ban the, can- the Christian flag by Camp Constitution. Uh, he says, well, the uh, case uh, was argued before court yesterday, and we will follow the outcome of this um, of this dispute. Well, he's not giving up Darwinism without some remorse. It means one less beautiful idea in our world, says David Gelletner. He's a renowned Yale computer science professor, and he's leaving Darwinism. This isn't someone you'd expect to reject Darwin. He lives and works at the heart of the intellectual establishment. He's a renowned computer scientist at Yale University. The New York Times called him a rock star. He served on the National Council on the Arts. He explained in a recent essay in the Claremont Review of Books why he no longer believes Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. He makes similar points in a recent interview with the Hoover Institution's Peter Robinson. Uh, Gellertner, who is a famous, who rather, who is famous for predicting the emergence of the World Wide Web, credits three books with changing his mind. One is Darwin's Doubt. You might want to take note if you're in a conversation with someone. Darwin's Doubt by Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute. Great organization, great book. We've talked about it here years ago on the program. A second is The Deniable Darwin and Other Essays by mathematician David Berlinski. And a third is Debating Darwin's Doubt. Um, David Klinghoffer, who has also been a guest on this program, talking about that book. Uh, It's an anthology that's edited by Klinghoffer, Debating Darwin's Doubt. So these three books he credits for changing his mind, which was apparently open to that possibility. Why did Gerlinter reject Darwinism? Well, for one thing, he points to the fossils missing from the record. This bothered even Darwin. Why is this a problem? Well, the number of fossils of major animal groups exploded during the Cambrian era. That means uh, we should have lots of fossils of simpler transitional creatures in the pre-Cambrian era. I'm not saying that right, but uh, you get the idea. But we don't. Darwin's theory predicts that new life forms evolve gradually from old ones in a constantly branching, spreading tree of life. 
uh, those brave new Cambrian uh, creatures must therefore have had uh, pre-Cambrian predecessors, similar, not quite as fancy and sophisticated. They could uh, not have all blown out suddenly like a bunch of uh, geysers. Each must have had a closely related predecessor, uh, which must have had its own predecessors. Well, the pre-Cambrian fossils that should have spawned the emergence of all these uh, Cambrian fossils are not there. Well, some argue that the pre-Cambrian precursor fossils are missing because they were soft-bodied organisms that didn't survive as fossils. But some pre-Cambrian soft-bodied fossils did survive. They just weren't the predecessors of the Cambrian fossils. Well, Gerlinter says the the incremental development of new species is largely not there. Most species enter the evolutionary order fully formed and then depart unchanged. Darwin can't explain that. Well, perhaps the biggest flaw with uh, Darwinism, he writes, is how hard it would be to randomly make new functional proteins. Darwinian evolution depends on huge numbers of them. Our understanding of molecular biology developed after Darwin. His theory doesn't fit well with this new understanding. Well, Gerlinter, he carefully reviews the evidence and his article provides a very helpful short guide to the problem. He cites Douglas Axe, a distinguished scientist who has calculated the chances of hitting a stable protein that performs some useful function and might therefore be preserved by natural selection are only one in 10. That's just one of the many, many proteins needed for any organism. Gerlinter summarizes the evidence, saying, and I quote, immense is so big and tiny is so small that neo-Darwinian evolution is so far a dead loss. Try to mutate your way from 150 lengths of gibberish to a working useful protein and you are uh, guaranteed to fail. Try it with 10 mutations, a thousand, a million, you fail. The odds bury you. It cannot be done. Well... Uh, He has uh, plenty of other problems with Darwinism. Uh, The last one he brings up is the neo-Darwinian belief that gene mutations drive macroevolution. These can explain changes in existing forms, but not the development of new forms. The mutations are fatal and the organism dies before it can reproduce. There are no examples of mutations that are not fatal. This Georgia Tech geneticist John McDonald calls the great Darwinian paradox. Although he takes down Darwinism, uh, Darwinism rather, Gerlinter doesn't uh, propose an alternative. He doesn't quite embrace the idea that intelligent design explains the origin of the species. He asks why a creator would have created so many doomed organisms, uh, why we are so uh, disease-prone, heartbreak-prone, and so on. On the other hand, the religion is all on the other, uh, other side. It's the Darwinians who have become dogmatic. Well, Gerlinter appeared in an interview in the June, uh, rather in June, with the Hoover Institution's Peter Robinson entitled Mathematical Challenges to Darwin's Theory of Evolution. Two of the authors he cites appeared along with him, Berlinski and Meyer. They're worth looking up. You can find out a little bit about all of that uh, by going to uh, uh, the Daily Stream, where they have a column on the subject, this Yale computer science professor leaving Darwinism. And uh, by uh, the way, his name is Gerlinter, if you're interested in uh, pursuing uh, more moved away from um, our Darwinian evolution, not quite to a biblical understanding of creationism, but at least open to the idea that that is a possibility given the absence of uh, necessary elements in the theory of evolution. And a lawyer representing PragerU in federal court says Google's reasons for denying some viewers access to videos produced by the conservative education organization on the tech giant's YouTube subsidiary defy belief. To suggest that PragerU's content is obscene, violent, hate speech 
is an absolute insult to the intelligence of the American public and people like yourself who are willing to enter the important political dialogue. That's a quote from Perger U's uh, lead attorney, Peter Obstetler, speaking to reporters and others at a press conference Tuesday in Seattle following the hearing held earlier that day. He spoke to reporters after both sides presented oral arguments in PragerU's versus um, Google LLC before the Seattle-based Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. U.S. District Judge Lucy Koh, appointed by the President, President Obama, I should say, dismissed the lawsuit in March, ruling that Google does not have to uh, treat those who use its service equally. The legal battle by the organization, co-founded by the commentator and Talk radio host Dennis Prager began in October of 2017. Prager University, known as Prager U, filed a lawsuit against Google after they placed more than 100 of the videos in restricted mode, flagging them as dangerous or derogatory based on ideological grounds rather than actual content. Restricted means that families that have a filter to avoid pornography and violence cannot see the video, Prager told the Senate subcommittee back in July. Prager U said that the press release that it uh, filed uh, with the lawsuit uh, because of Google and YouTube had, had restricted about 10 percent of their um, video content and maintains that the organization's videos have been restricted, not because they are explicit, vulgar or obscene in nature or inappropriate for children in any way, but rather because they promote conservative ideas. Again, arguments were heard yesterday. We'll see what happens in the days ahead, and we will follow that story. Tomorrow, it's a fun Friday, a compilation of fun Friday elements from the last uh, several weeks. And then on Monday, we have a special for uh, Labor Day, and uh, you will have the opportunity to enjoy that in the second hour of the program. James Blinn producing, Chris Williams engineering. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.